Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. We took a few weeks off from the podcast, and I hope you didn't miss me too much, but we are back and ready to jump in with a light, airy, uncontroversial topic, abortion. Now, I'm not interested in relitigating Roe v. Wade or its overturning or even to debate the pro-life versus pro-choice position here. I imagine there are listeners on both sides of the debate, or perhaps somewhere in the middle. I wanted to take an angle away from the policy debate and more toward this question. How can those who are pro-life live out those beliefs? We're going to explore that in three ways today. First, we're going to hear from the activism side, talking to Jeannie Mancini of March for Life. Then we'll look at the information side, hearing from the Human Coalition's Jeff Bradford, and finally an aspect of pro-life conversation that sometimes gets overlooked, adoption, as we talk to Ryan Hanlon of National Council for Adoption. No matter your stance or level of involvement on the abortion issue, I think you'll enjoy hearing how these three groups engage. So let's jump in. One way to help others understand that an idea has support is to physically show them all the supporters. That is part of the idea behind the March for Life, which is more than an annual rally in Washington, D.C., but a full-fledged organization working not just to show support for the pro-life position, but to change the culture to make abortion unthinkable. For the last 11 years, Jeannie Mancini has led the March for Life as president, and I am happy to talk with her today. So, Jeannie, some of our listeners may know the history of the march, but certainly others don't. I don't know it all that well. Give us the, the brief origin story. Happy to. And thanks so much, Peter, for inviting me on. I'm really honored to be one of your guests. So, um, of course, 1973, January 22nd, were the terrible Supreme Court decisions, Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. And that made abortion legal in all 50 states in the United, in the United States. The following year, there were a group of people, including our founder, Nellie Gray, who wanted that anniversary to be noticed. They wanted to draw a line in the sand. And so they created what they thought would be a one-time or two-time event, the March for Life on the anniversary of Roe. Little did they know that here, you know, 51 years later almost, that we'd still be marching, nor did they know that the March for Life would become the largest, longest-running human rights demonstration worldwide, bar any other demonstration that I'm aware of. So here we are. Uh, this will be our 51st March for Life this this coming January, and I've been blessed to lead the organization for the last 11 years. Why do they think it would only go for a year or two? Did they think that Roe would be overturned, or they just thought, we'll go show some support, and then we'll all go back to our, our homes and walk away? They thought that the, uh, the judicial activism decision that Roe was would be corrected much earlier than 50 years later, even though, I mean, when you look at cultural issues, 50 years actually isn't that long for a Supreme Court, you know, decision to be corrected. 
uh, people just expected it was such a horrendous and um, activist decision. They thought it would be corrected within a year or two. No one expected it would stay on the books as long as it did. So interesting. Now, you've got the National March. You do that every January. Um, but you also have marches in, I think, eight states now. Is that right? Is that a, a growing number? Is that a thing that, that you're continuing to expand? Yeah, thanks so much. As as long as I've been running the march, it's the single hardest thing that we've done. So back in 2019, we officially began our state march initiative. It was a fruit of some burnout in the organization and really trying to ask the deep questions about what our mission is, what we bring to the table that no other groups bring to the table. And what we came to realize is that we bring marches. Um, We are the group that unites, equips, immobilizes pro-life people in the public square. And the single question that we were asked more than any other from outsiders was, can you help us start a local march? So we began, uh, we you know researched this, tried kind of a beta launch. Um, and in 2019, in my home state of Virginia, we had our first state march. Since then, we've been growing. And now, of course, COVID slowed that down quite a bit. But this year, 2023, we're in eight states. We've still got four ahead of us in the first few months of the fall. Next year, we'll be in 16, and then we'll be in all 50 states in the next five to seven years, depending on um, resources, essentially. So I guess it's more than a March a month starting next year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This thing is growing much more quickly than I ever expected. And when we had this, I would say, inspiration to begin it, and again, as a fruit of organizational discernment, Um, none of us knew that Roe would be overturned and that those state marches would be all the more important. Yeah, that the value of those really goes up in a post-Roe world. I mean, in theory, that is what so much of this debate has been over. Yes, it's over abortion, but more importantly, it's a push it back down to the states conversation. And and there you are, uh, continuing it there. Okay, so I admit I am a cynic when it comes to marches, to demonstrations. I, I don't always see the value of it. It's a lot of people standing up yelling, whoopee-doo, that's great. Disabuse me of that. What is the value of these marches? Yeah, and let me just say, in some ways, I know this sounds kind of strange, but but what I think um, is more important than the public witness is is actually the prayerful component. Like, I think in some ways we're really just in this deep spiritual battle, and I myself am a very deeply spiritual person, so I see that as the most important part, like the prayer, the contemplation. But What the march is about is essentially giving witness to those who can't give witness for themselves. So uh, no one will argue that the other side isn't trying to make abortion, to kind of remove any shame from abortion and to rename it. I mean, especially years ago, the other side would argue that, you know, a baby growing in the womb is a lifeless blob of tissue, harder to do with the advances in ultrasound and sonography that we have today. But there's something about the march that draws a line in the sand. And it's just, it's going out in a public, peaceful, joyful way saying, this is a human rights issue, and I'm standing up for the poorest of the poor, the most vulnerable, in a respectful way. And it's it's very American, doing it in the public square. That's fair. I should say too, Peter, even if that's not very convincing. It's been my experience that most people attending the march have kind of a conversion experience. So maybe they're nominally pro-life or even, even more. But there's something about being there with the sheer number of people, and especially the young people, that is so buoying to our spirits and it sort of just uplifts you and, and changes your heart and makes you more deeply committed to the issue. I can definitely see that being, being around other people who share your values in a world where we're 
increasingly pushed away from physically from people who share our values, even if it's easier to find them online, is a is a powerful thing, whether that's a Christian revival or a Black Lives Matter march or a march for life. It's bringing people together it has a lot of power. Um, yes. Uh, I won't say I'm totally convinced, but I definitely get it. Uh, so earlier, I'll take this... that as a challenge. I have other ideas, but I know, I know we're limited <laughs> on time, but I've got other things I want to say, so another time. <laughs> now, so as you mentioned, this was the first year of doing the march post-Roe. How was it different? You know, it was incredible. Uh, I will say going into the march, there were all sorts of questions. First of all, about what the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe even meant. Um, even in my own community, uh, many people thought it meant that abortion was illegal. And that, that's so wrong. So where Roe did make abortion legal in all 50 states, the overturn of Roe didn't make it illegal. It just returned it to the American people through their elected officials. And um, states have so much more power now to be able to do things. So prior to Roe, uh, you know, states couldn't enact life protective laws that would be prior to the moment of viability. So they couldn't enact life protective laws prior to like 20 weeks. Now, half the states in the country have enacted just such laws, many of them protecting life even at the time of heartbeat or, or earlier. So that's very exciting. So there was a lot of confusion over why do we still march? Um, and I think that the bottom line there and what we tried to do is just really educate that we're not done yet, that our main goal was not just to overturn Roe, but it's to make abortion unthinkable. I mean, it would be to make abortion illegal too, don't get me wrong, but the far loftier goal is to make abortion unthinkable. And anyone who's watching this and even saw what happened last night in Ohio knows that we are not yet done. That we're, in fact, we've got our work cut out for us right now that we've got a daunting task ahead of us. So we're not, we haven't built a culture of life in the United States. We're in a new season. There's a great Winston Churchill quote that's been maybe even overused, but I feel like it perfectly describes this moment. And he was using it after the Battle of El Amin in World War II. And he was asked, is this the end? And he was told, it's not the end. And it's not even the beginning of the end, but perhaps it's the end of the beginning. And I think that perfectly articulates where we are. We're sort of you know, done with chapter one or chapter two, and now we're on to chapter three of what it means to build a culture of life. Earlier, you mentioned young people, and I've heard a lot that the demographic interest in abortion is actually continuing to skew younger. There's a lot more young women in particular who are more interested in the pro-life position. Does that bear out in what you see? It definitely does. So let me invite any of your listeners who haven't participated in the March for Life to come this year to the annual march or to go to one of the state marches. But by and large, our participants are under the age of 25. I'd say 80% of our participants, and we have well over 100,000 who march every single year. They shut down our nation's capital. They shut down 14th Street, Constitution Avenue. It's a beautiful thing to see. They're very positive. They're very creative in the signs they hold, and they are young. They're young. They say that they're the pro-life generation and it's it's a beautiful thing. It really is very uplifting. And the the Students for Life is a big big piece of that. A great That's organization right. doing good work in that. So, kind of wrapping up here, the marketing communications side of me is just fascinated by the idea of how you get so many people in one place, you know, literally marching in the same direction. How do you communicate and get the message out? How do you raise awareness about it? I'm curious if there's things that other 
groups could learn from the way you do it? Really organically. Like, I wish I was this incredible strategic thinker in this. And I, I feel like by God's grace, um, we have been able to grow. So one thing that that shifted a lot when I started working with the March, because the founder of the March was 88 when she passed away and she was still running the March single-handedly. So one of our first goals was to update social media because with so many young people coming to the March, we knew that social media was kind of their language, the way that they spoke. And so now, you know, we're one of the most followed groups in the pro-life world um, with maybe two or three exceptions. Every single year, we get uh, marchers to use the hashtag why we march and to tell their stories, to post pictures. Um, and it always trends worldwide, always. And that's that's been since like 2014 or 2015. So that's very exciting. So we do some really organic things, but we don't really, we don't pay for social media ads. We have a few times for very, very little, but it's, it's truly organic. And so I would say um, the product that we're selling is really good. Um, and our marketing could use some honing, but part, one of the ways that we sell the product, which is that life is beautiful, we try to always message very positively on this, uh, is that we get people to tell their stories. And we especially get young people to tell their stories because stories are what change hearts and minds. And so on social media, when you're posting a picture or telling a story or a little video or what have you, it's very moving to people, especially when it's, you know, I was adopted or my mom, you know, chose life in this difficult scenario or didn't choose life and really regrets that. And she hears how there's great hope and healing in her life. And so I would say that's one of our, our tools. But I think that the best thing we have going for us is the product. Life is very beautiful and inherently attractive. Well, that is a good thought to leave on Jeannie Mancini with March for Life. We really appreciate sharing all this with us today. Thanks for having me, Peter. What if you took the best ideas of digital engagement and big data, plus storytelling and grassroots network building, and then applied it all to helping to reduce abortion? That is how I summarize the work of Human Coalition. Human Coalition isn't working to change policy, it's working to directly change the trajectory of those considering abortion, one baby at a time. Jeff Bradford is the president of Human Coalition. I'm excited to talk to him today. Jeff, you can probably give a much better articulation of what Human Coalition does than my uh, pithy thing there. So so why don't you describe Human Coalition? How do you describe it? Sure, Peter. Thanks for having me today. It's an honor to be with you and your guests. Um, you know, Human Coalition uh, is one of the largest pro-life, pro-woman organizations in the country. And, and as you mentioned, we work directly with clients um, and we intervene. You know, women who are what we would define as planning to abort, meaning they've already made a decision to have an abortion and they're looking for options. And we bring them into a system of care. And so we're building a unified national rescue system that not only helps counsel women for their options for life, but we also have extensive and comprehensive wraparound services like housing and education, employment, very difficult situations that women are in that feel like abortion is their only option. And so we help them with an empowered decision. And 76% of the women who plan to abort would say they would prefer to parent if their circumstances were different. And so through private-public partnerships, we expand that unified national rescue system. But uh, we do actually work some in the legislative area. It's not very well known, but we also help with uh, protecting and writing good laws. And so we're uniquely qualified because we work directly with women 
and understand really what moves the needle for them and how do we make good laws that really protect women and help them flourish as, as moms and families. We're going to unpack all those different different pieces there, but what I want to start with is storytelling. I mean, one of the things I think Human Coalition does really well is is tell stories. Your homepage is full of stories. Even your staff page has pictures of all of you as babies and kind of just really is your own message from top to bottom. Uh, you have a background in media, so maybe that's where some of this comes from. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised. But why is storytelling so important to your work? Well, first, I, have to, I take no credit for our uh, innovative and creative uh, uh, work at Human Coalition. We have a fantastic team, and I do. I love the baby pictures, and if you see mine, I'm, I'm the chubbiest baby uh, there. Um, storytelling is incredibly powerful. I mean, the reason I'm here is because of my story. You know, I don't know if you if I've shared with you, but my wife and I, um, during our wedding engagement, got pregnant. And I, I, since we don't have a long time, I won't go into the details of that, but we had helped start a church, and that church split. And during that split, we felt like we had lost our, our church family and decided to go in uh, for counseling. And my wife, we closed the door, my wife began to cry just uncontrollably. And as we got underneath those tears, it came down to a decision we made now 30 years ago. And uh, during our engagement, we got pregnant and uh, went to my father and got terrible advice, and we ended up at Planned Parenthood. That same week, I met the two co-founders of what organization now I run. And so uh, God just opened my eyes and took our story of pain and hurt and turned it into something beautiful where we get to stand in the gap. So stories are an emotional connection. Uh, they bring personalization to to understanding how what it is to walk in other people's shoes, to have empathy and and have a perspective of what it is to um, to understand what what they're going through, and it provides a perspective shift sometimes, and certainly bridges uh, builds bridges and um, community so that people can understand what it's like to. I, Real quickly, I mean, you know, I don't remember the Passion of the Christ, but I remember the scene where Simon of Cyrene is asked to pick up uh, Jesus's cross. And he's like, I don't want to do that. And, uh, you know, I'm not guilty. Why should I have to carry his cross? And I remember him looking into Jesus's eyes and then taking up that cross. And it was just a powerful movement because, moment because we realized what it is to actually walk in somebody else's shoes. And so the stories tell that, and these women are incredibly... Um, uh, courageous. Uh, they're in very difficult situations, but sometimes they just need somebody to stand in the gap and help them. And of course, it's more than storytelling. I mean, all the stories are great if you can never talk to folks in the first place and you have a very sophisticated marketing plan, marketing program to and leveraging, you know, big data, if you want to call it that, or all mm -hmm. the tools that are out there to, to be at that point of decision. Talk to us about that operation. Well, that's really where we started, Peter. You know, when we first started, we were just going to be a lead generator uh, for the pro-life movement. We discovered, you know, 12 years ago that less than 2% of the women who were actually planning to abort, those had made a decision to abort, were coming in contact with pro-life options. And so we set out to use the internet, which no one was using at that time, to actually reach women who are looking for an abortion, scheduling an abortion, looking for prices. And the internet was a, a place people were starting to go. And so we had the innovative idea of using the internet to reach women 
and bring them in and have them call pregnancy centers so that we'd have an opportunity to counsel their, them for life. And so over the last 12 years, we have used data and science and everything you can, counseling and say everything that uh, you know, we use in the business world, that we use in the counseling world, in the Christian world, in order to better understand how to connect with that woman and help her make an empowered decision for life. And so marketing is one of the biggest, you know, gaps that we have in the pro-life movement. We're still not reaching near enough women across the country to actually help them uh, make an empowered decision for life. And so walk us through what happens. You get that message you know, the right message at the right time to the right person. What happens then? What is the action that, that the women are invited to take? And, and you mentioned, I mean, kind of going through the wraparound services and these these yeah. things that feed the decision to have an abortion in the first place. I'm curious how you engage the, at that point. Yeah, and, and it starts with the click. It starts with being number one or two on the Google searches so that we can compete head to head with Planned Parenthood and have them call us before they call Planned Parenthood. So they'll be they would Google abortion, you know, near me or some phrase that whatever they're looking for, and we try to come up number one or two on those search pages so that they click on us. And when they do, they get a registered nurse under a medical licensed doctor, so that nurses, as you know, are one of the most respected professions in the country and and trusted. And so we want that woman to feel loved and cared for, and we want to help counsel her for her options. And so we we essentially do a nurse consultation where we're able to share with them uh, what it means to have an abortion so that even if they walk away from our call and don't choose life, that they understand what the abortion procedures are and the risks and everything that goes along with that. Chemical abortion, as you know, are over 50% of all abortions. These women are uh, aborting their child in their bathroom, in their toilet. It is a it is a horrendous uh, process. And so we help them understand to be better prepared if they do go through with that. But we also, of course, counsel them for life and what that means and all the services that we provide and the help and hope that they can have by being a mom and then we also counsel for adoption. And we work with Lifeline Adoption Services, which is one of the best adoption agencies in the country. Uh, Herbie Newell from their organization. And we doubled our referrals. And so we just look at getting better and better at understanding that woman and helping her through a really dark time in her life. And so um, it's it's an amazing process. Um, you know, we, we have to... We have to first, but we have to start with the reach. We have to start with actually getting them to call us. So we have a, a, at least a shot of helping them understand their, their true options. These women have been, you know, lied to that abortion is the only option, that abortion's going to somehow magically help them with all, everything. And what happens is, as you and I know, these women walk into Planned Parenthood in the abortion clinic kill their child and walk out with the same problems that they walked into. It does not solve the issues that they actually have that reasons why they came in to have an abortion in the first place. And so we have to solve those. We have to change hearts and minds and we have to stand in the gap and actually roll up our sleeves and walk with these women through healing and tangible help. And that's where human coalition comes in. And so, uh, it's one of the most, uh, amazing things I've ever done in my life. And having someone um, like me who chose 
to abort our oldest daughter. It's the most rewarding and uh, amazing things that God's let me be a part of and try to um, help other folks who spend a lifetime of regret. It's a decision that you can never take back and one that you'll regret. Um, so we work hard to help empower those women to make a, a decision, and hopefully it's for life. And how has the work changed in the past you know, year since, uh, since the Roe verdict? Well, it's gotten harder to be, to be really truthful. Um, it's harder than ever. Um, we have, you know, 50 state battles one by one. And I will say the pro-abortion uh, movement uh, has become more apoplectic than ever. Uh, they are fighting, you know, with everything they have. And we're up against a very pro-abortion administration that's doing everything they can to harm uh, pro-life and women. Uh, attorneys generals around the country are going after uh, pro-life organizations. Big tech is canceling. So all those things are very real of what we're up against. And I think, too, you might be surprised, but there's there's some apathy. And so we have to re-educate the pro-life movement uh, that the the overturning Roe did not win the war. It was a good it was a good victory. It was a great victory. But that was just one battle in a war that uh, we're a long ways from winning. And so we encourage folks to really get more involved than ever before. We can't let our foot off the gas. Uh, we've got to put gas in the tank. We've got to keep going. And we've got to fight harder and smarter, more innovatively than ever before. Well, I think the the human coalition approach is innovative from the very beginning. And I... Uh... Appreciate you sharing a little bit about it. I know there's so many other things we could have talked about too, um, but uh, hopefully people will check out Human Coalition and learn more, particularly some of those wraparound services uh, that you all offer. So Jeff Bradford, thanks so much. Hey, thanks, Peter. Honor to be with you. The role of adoption has always been an important card in the deck of pro-life advocacy, and our next group plays a key role in helping others understand the value of adoption. In a call last year with our team at Donors Trust, National Council for Adoption billed itself as the State Policy Network of Adoption Agencies. NCFA is committed to the belief that every child deserves to thrive in a nurturing, permanent family. National Council for Adoption's mission is to meet the diverse needs of all those touched by adoption through global advocacy, education, research, legislative action, and collaboration. Ryan Hanlon has been president since last year, but with the organization and in the space much longer and perhaps most relevantly, is an adoptive father himself. Ryan, why don't we start here? What is the state of adoption in the U.S. today? Thanks for having me on your show, Peter. Um, the state of adoption today is very different than it was in, in decades past. So there are now fewer adoptions than there were in the past. There's fewer private adoptions happening and there are more adoptions happening from foster care than many decades past, although it's declined somewhat in the last few years. Um, and, and so the, on, on aggregate, there are far fewer adoptions, but there's many you know, positive things to say. There's more openness now in adoption between the birth family and the adoptive family. There's less secrecy around adoption the way there used to be in, in decades past. And there's a lot more resources to help address behavioral issues or other things that can come up for those children who were placed for adoption after experiencing abuse or neglect. And I think I heard you say on another interview I was watching that a lot of that decline that we're seeing has really been driven by the falling rates of international adoption. Is that right? 
That's that's right. International adoption has declined by well over 90% just in the last 15 years. And so um, that's a, a huge part of the decline. The number of private domestic adoptions is somewhat plateaued in recent years. Um, those are you know roughly 20,000 or so every year. And then the number of adoptions from foster care um, tends to to um, track the number of kids who are entering foster care. Um, and so when we have a year where there's a larger cohort of children entering foster care, there's intends to be more adoptions a year or two later. Um, so following COVID, we had fewer kids entering the foster care system. We're then gonna expect to see fewer adoptions happening um, with just fewer kids in the system in general. So tell us more about National Council for Adoption. What is the role you play in this ecosystem? You know, a big thing we want to do is we want to help connect professionals with one another throughout the country. So adoption agencies are usually relatively small working in their local community, and they often benefit when they can be working and learning from their peers across the country. So we connect them by hosting an annual conference uh, for multiple days in person where they can learn from one another. They can hear from um, subject matter experts and you know uh, work on their continuing education. We host online webinars for professional development, and then we connect them um, through our listservs, through video conferencing forums, um, and, and other opportunities where we can have them learn from and hear from one another. Um, we, we did that actually just today. I, I had a group of, of workers. They all are focused on adoption from Colombia, from the country of Colombia. And so I, I organized that for them, and they could then talk to one another, learn from one another, and um, ensure that they're you know, um, up to date on best practices and they can support one another that way. Um, but there's more than that that we do. We focus on education for everyone who's involved with adoption, uh, birth families, uh, adoptive families, adopted individuals themselves, members of the wider community, uh, the media, policymakers. They often benefit from more education around adoption. And so we publish articles and provide other um, educational collateral so that the, the community can learn more about adoption. Um, we conduct research and we have ongoing research projects where uh, we partner with universities and other research um, groups. Um, we can address information gaps that way. We can uh, better understand the adoption landscape, but then we can be in a position to do that educational work that I talked about um, after we've conducted um, really rigorous research about the, the communities that we're studying. Um, and then finally, we do advocacy, usually at the federal level, but, but at the state level as well, um, where we can be providing information to policymakers and their staff. Um, we can um, talk to them about what's important, you know, um, in terms of the regulations they're forming. Uh, regulations have an important role, but sometimes they could be going too far. They might be overly burdensome. They, um, they're going to have an impact on the field, and so we want to make sure the regulations that are in place are smart and that they're um, doing what the policymakers actually intend. And some of that research that gets disseminated so widely, am I wrong that part of that is built on a survey you do that's really the only one of its kind? Is that right? That's right. There's actually a few that we do, um, but we're the only group that, that on a consistent basis um, estimates the number of private domestic adoptions that happen in the U.S. And so we're the source that, that um, one would go to to say how many adoptions happen. Um, we, the federal government tracks how many adoptions there are from foster care. They track how many intercountry adoptions there are. No one's tracking private domestic adoption. We think the federal government should do that, and that's an advocacy goal that we have. Until then, we're going to 
Um, every few years, we're going to do estimates to get there. But we also survey um, individuals. We just recently released a research report where we heard from birth parents what their experiences are, what their views are towards adoption. And it's the largest survey like that that's ever been conducted. Um, before that, we did a survey of adoptive households. We heard from well over 4,000 adoptive households that um, talked about what their experiences were during the adoption process, post-adoption, what the experiences are like for their family. And we can then use that um, to you know, better prepare future adoptive families. You know, you mentioned a spot there where the federal government wasn't doing something that probably it is actually leveraged to do in terms of getting stats and numbers and all of that sort of information. I mean, that's actually probably a pretty good role for government, but it also seems like government involvement across the board in adoption is really, really high, at least domestically, but I imagine internationally as well. And then there's foster care. What are the consequences of all that government involvement? Is it too much? You know, at times it is too much, at times it's not. You're exactly right that it's the highest in both foster care and intercountry adoption. Um, it, it, at the state level, that's where the regulations happen for private domestic adoption. You know, there's an important role for regulations to play, for the government to play in overseeing adoption. This is not something that should be um, designed as a for-profit venture where we're looking to really capitalize on this. So it's important that there are um, that there's governmental oversight, but there's other times where the government comes in and they um, put really burdensome requirements in place, or they, they just put a, a regulation in place that's downright unhelpful. And when that happens, it's important that they can hear from NCFA or for other groups, um, from adoption agencies themselves, adoptive families themselves, and saying, hey, this isn't good or this isn't helpful. Um, you know, the, the government sets policies um, at the state level and at the federal level in terms of funding and appropriations and, and resources. And um, we want to be a voice that says, let's make sure that we're providing post-adoption support to families. Let's be sure that the work we're doing isn't going to be making life more difficult for adoptive families or that we're, we're not disincentivizing a family to pursue adoption instead of remaining a foster parent. So this past year has been very different, I imagine, for the look of your organization, just because of this post-Roe era. What has happened to adoption and to your organization since that ruling? You know, um, you're right that um, a lot has changed. For us, one of the main things we're doing is we're, we're trying to address a lot of the misinformation that's out there in the media, so that there's been a lot of media interest in What's the impact of this Dobbs decision on adoption or what are the experiences of those who do place their child for adoption? And we want to address that to make sure they have good, accurate information and they're not talking about adoption the way adoption looked like 50 or 60 years ago. Um, in terms of how that decision has impacted the field, I would say it's, it's still too early to tell. Um, I mentioned earlier that the federal government doesn't track how many adoptions happen. Because of that, um, it's not going to be easy to, to go back and say, you know, we're seeing an increase here or a decrease there. Um, anecdotally, there are some agencies that are reporting um, more informational calls. There's a few that have told me they're, they're seeing more placements. Others are saying, you know, we haven't really seen a change yet at all. And so I think it's going to take uh, probably a year or two until we can really definitively say exactly what the, the impact is in terms of it, whether or not there are more adoption placements. Regardless, I think what's really important is that we ensure that anyone who's facing an unplanned pregnancy 
has accurate information about adoption and they have an opportunity to consider, is this right for me? Is this right for my child? Unfortunately, I don't think the majority of those who face an unplanned pregnancy are receiving any type of counseling or support to even consider adoption. And there's a lot of misinformation about what a private adoption entails. A lot of times a woman facing that situation doesn't realize she can pick who the adoptive parents are. She can choose the extent to which she's looking for an ongoing relationship with her child. Um, she might think that this is involved with a foster care system. That's a common misperception. And so um, really saying, you know, your child is not going to be in foster care and is going to immediately be in a home that's been vetted, that's safe, that you can choose who the parents are, and you can choose the extent to which you're looking for that ongoing relationship. It would seem with all your research and studies and resources, plus the advocacy work, that you're in a unique position to be a partner to a lot of groups that are in the space doing different aspects of the work. I mean, today we're talking to a human coalition and March for Life, but there's think tanks, there's the Center for Rights for Abused Children in the foster care area, uh, healthcare groups. How do you work with some of these groups that are in this adoption space kind of broadly? You know, we have great partnerships with other organizations because we really specialize in adoption. They might come to us and say, um, hey, we're doing an event. Can you be the subject matter just on adoption? Or do you have resources for our clients or our stakeholders about adoption? Or it might be vice versa. If um, somebody's interacting with us, we might um, refer them to one of the groups you mentioned because that's more in their lane. Um, we, we really partner the most with adoption agencies um, to both learn from them. What are they experiencing on the ground? How are, are you know, they experiencing the impact of policies or the, the work that they're doing with the families and the, the individuals that they serve? And, you know, what resources do they need or can we be providing to them? So I would say they're our number one partner. Uh, but as you mentioned, all of these other groups are groups that we're constantly working with. We're looking to ensure they have good information, um, that they have the resources they need. And at times that, um, you know, there are oftentimes clients um, from the adoption agencies might look to us to say, hey, like your example, I need a mental health provider. We then have partners that we can refer to where they can look for um, that support, or they might have questions. You know, a lot of adoptions are um, placements of children who have a medical special need, and so there's a huge overlap then with the medical community having good information and being able to inform the adoption community about the long-term implications there. So we've developed a network that we can refer families to to get really specific information for the particular case they have and where the adoption professionals can be um, learning more about this and they can be better equipped to provide ongoing support to these families. Ryan Hanlon, really appreciate you talking with us today about all the work that NCFA is up to. Uh, there's a lot of pieces to it and it's so important, perhaps uh, even more important now in this post-Row era. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me on your show. One commonality I see among all three of the groups we heard from today is the importance of storytelling and an emphasis on the human-to-human connection for changing hearts and minds. We heard how March for Life creates connection among like-minded folks, strengthening their conviction. We heard how Human Coalition speaks directly to those most in need of compassion, those struggling with an abortion decision. And we heard how National Council for Adoption makes it possible for children to find a loving home when, for whatever reason, 
the original home isn't going to work out. I hope I met my goal of highlighting a few ways pro-life people can live out their beliefs. There are, of course, other groups in this space as well, some of which we reference, like Students for Life, Lifeline Children's Services, and there are groups like Avail, which is a bit more in the vein of Human Coalition's work in helping mothers at that decision point and beyond, and so many others in this space. For links to all these groups, visit DonorsTrust.org podcast. And while there, explore the broader Donors Trust website to see how Donors Trust could be a helpful partner to you and your charitable giving, if, of course, we aren't already. I appreciate you listening to the podcast, and I hope you'll subscribe to Giving Ventures and not miss an episode. Summer break is over, and we will be back in two weeks with another great show for you with some more great groups to feature. Until then, thank you for being a giver. Let's talk more soon. Thank you.